Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Fertility Life Raft with me, Alice Rose. This podcast is for you if you find yourself longing for a baby and then finding that the path to bringing them home is not easy. It's for you if you've had enough of feeling like you're losing sight of yourself because that's how I felt too. And it's also for you if you're supporting someone going through this and want to understand a little bit more. So welcome to a totally safe space, honest conversation, real and raw stories shared and a little bit of topical stuff too because I really believe it's not all down to you to get through this. The world needs to catch up too. Hello, hello, how are we? Um, I'm really excited to bring you the wonderful guest for this week's episode. She is called Kat Brown And she is a freelance journalist covering art, social media, culture and equestrian travel. Her work has appeared in The Telegraph, The Eye, The Independent, Grazia and others. And I first met Kat, well, I tell you a little bit about about our first meeting in this episode, but we first met at a women's circle that I was hosting. And I just really wanted to learn more about this woman who was there. She just seemed to... I don't know, there was a, a, a sort of magnetic quality about Kat and she seemed so interesting to me and she was so honest and open and and, and raw in that, uh, you know, at that event and I wanted to know more about her. And as it turned out, um, we actually lived not far away and she then shares her story with us in this episode which is really really honest and really important to hear and I love sharing stories from people who go through all different kinds of experiences and one of the things I do want to say and that sometimes my members do say to me within the community that I run is that Sometimes it's hard to hear stories which have endings which we um, are hoping won't be our endings. But what I say to this is that I find it incredibly important and also actually comforting to hear stories of all kinds of experiences because actually, and I found this myself during my own journey, when I really, really did consider what might happen, I did find a perspective, a paradigm, a worldview, which was entirely new for me. Before I knew how my story would end, I found a new perspective and I knew that whatever happened, I was going to be okay. 
And that's the messaging that this podcast aims to share. That with the right support and with the right inner work and inner exploration, (laughs) um, there is always so much potential for life-changing and quite radical mindset shifting stuff. And that is not to say that this experience should be diminished or anything about it should be um, minimised because it's very big stuff. And I think by sharing the stories that I share, and particularly today with Kat, I don't shy away from that. And I feel like we shouldn't shy away from that as a community. We need to hear all of the stories. And I love Kat's way of expressing herself. And you'll hear how incredibly she does tell her story and express what it's like to go through this. And for, yeah, how she is is finding it right now. So enjoy. Um, And as always, please, please do rate, review, subscribe. It makes all of the difference. And now I'm going to be quiet and let you hear from Kat. So welcome, Kat Brown, to my studio. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Not, not Not just for being on the podcast, but also for being in an actual studio for what feels like the first time in about 15 months. Amazing. Normal life is coming back. For those listening who can't see where we are, we are actually in my glorified um, shed, um, shed office, and um, it's extremely warm today, and we're both sweating quite a lot. But that's okay. We're going to sweat through it, and we're going to have a lovely, a lovely conversation about who you are and why we're speaking, and what, um, yeah, what your story is. So, yeah, let's start with because we met a couple of years ago now, didn't? It was a couple of years ago, and I was hosting a little women's circle, and you came along, and that's where we met. And then I realised that you lived in Streatham, which is where I live, and then started following you on Instagram and loved you. (laughs) So funny, so, like, diverse as well with all of your content, all your writing that you do. So just tell me, what brought you to that women's circle, and where are you now? Well... I mean, before we even begin, as I sit here sweating in gym wear, I should apologise to anybody watching on YouTube because I didn't actually read the email properly. And so I've just rocked up in an old Gilmore Girls t-shirt and some winter tights, winter leggings. And uh, poor Alice was just like, you know we're going to be recording. And I was just like, oh God. So sorry if you're looking at my sweaty face. Um, I don't think, thank goodness, um, my sweaty face was really a thing when I came to that gorgeous woman's circle because I remember it being in autumn winter. Mm. And I found you through an Instagram story that was posted by by the the, um, Big Fat Negative podcast girls, Gabby and Emma, who I first started following when I was sort of struggling with infertility and doing what I would always do in circumstances like that, which is Google endlessly, check hashtags and all that sort of thing, and then found the podcast and and then found you. And that woman's circle was something that I really needed at that time because when I grew up, um, I didn't like women at all. I didn't like girls because they were just basically 
the minute that I sort of entered my last years of primary school and went into secondary school, most of them were just people who bullied me. Mm-hmm. And same with boys, to be honest. Sort of, it was basically the world was split into the infinitesimally small number of people that didn't bully me at school <laughs> and, um, and everybody else who did. So my relationship with girls and my relationship with myself as a woman was very up and down and all over the place because then you stir like the 90s ladette culture into the mix and me being an extremely tall woman of six foot one who is not like model size by any stretch of the imagination um, and I just had no idea how to fit into the world, Mm. how to fit into the world as a woman, as a girl, when all of the messages that I was getting from magazines, popular culture, my own family as well, um, were all very much towards you must do this and you must get good grades and perfect, 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 tick off all these boxes. So in the back of my head was always, well, something that I will have to do at some point is to have children because that's what women do. Um, That's what all the women in my family do. Um, And, you know, they become parents and you know that's the sort of the good role of of womanhood and that sort of thing but at the same time I was trying to figure out who I was and wondering why I seem to find life so much more difficult than other people um I suppose one ingredient again that came about through being tall and also being a small child in the late 80s was that for god knows what reason um some doctors that my parents took me to to talk about my height suggested either giving me growth hormones to stunt my growth or just moving me up a year at school because I was quite clever. Like, oh, strange binary, obviously. Um, As if being, like, tall was a difference anyway. I think it's basically sort of pushing me into the summer baby phenomenon. And obviously summer babies can really struggle at school. Um, I didn't really struggle with the schoolwork, but I really struggled with the social interactions. And obviously that had a knock-on effect into everything else. Mm. So ironically the person I went on to marry was actually somebody who I met in my first year of university when I was 17 completely clueless and just going off the rails with the insane taste of freedom alcohol every minute of the day if I wanted it joining in every society and club that I possibly could and just I mean there were no rails left I'd basically ripped them all up and sort of thrown them out of the window Um, We did not get together until about 13 years after we first met, by which point I had luckily sort of, you know, gone through a lot of mad, chaotic 20s-ness and was starting to sort of settle down and and try and understand myself a bit more. And but when we got married um, in 2015, so coming up for six years ago, I was made redundant a month later and that was... Mm, that was my third third redundancy Mm. and but at the same time I was like well god Catherine you're nearly 33 you know chip chop you've got to start having kids and then so that was one message which was not necessarily a message for me but was just this message that I sucked up for years Mm. and but at the same time it was like yes but you've just been made redundant you keep being made redundant because you chose to go into journalism you absolute genius why couldn't you have been like a financial wizard and become an accountant or something i was really bad at maths so that was just never going to happen yeah. but so there was just this sense of hopelessness and futility because i was like but my life doesn't feel like it started and now i'm going to give it up to raise another person she said melodramatically and <laughs> 
I mean, one thing that I know from so many people talking about motherhood and parenting over the years to an increasing amount of truthfulness and realness is that, you know, there's no good time to have a baby. But I'd spent so much of my life trying to figure out, again, why I found life harder than other people, why I was so depressed all the time and anxious and why my brain never felt like it was stopping. And I still didn't feel like I understood all those things. So when then I came off the pill and thought and had a pregnancy scare almost immediately, even though we were trying for a baby, to me that was a scare. Mm because again just I wasn't ready for it but then the months went on and then the years went on and I was like oh oh and then I got really annoyed because I was like but I'm ready now well I'm not ready ready but my schedule has got this window open come on and and then just nothing happened and that was when um my husband and I started going ah ah okay we probably better start investigating and go to the GP and uh, and that fun infertility journey that we all know and love started up then. I have so many things I want to talk to you about after that and so I could honestly sit here and listen to you chat for a really really long time. That was a monologue I'm so no, no, sorry. No. <laughs> no but to say like I I could just sit and listen because there was so much in that and I think that Everything that you're talking about, you know, the time that we were born in the 80s and all of the stuff that comes with that, mm. your experience at school and how that affects you as an adult and how you see your life panning out because you feel that you must have children because that, as you say, is that's the messaging that we're given. And yeah. it's, yeah, so, so okay, so we've, we've come up to the point where you have started trying, you've got the window scheduled 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 <laughs> which I so hear and I think everyone listening will be like oh yeah we know about the window the window is open you're ready it's not happening so you went to the GP and at this point like had you spoken to many people after you know had you told people that you were trying what was the no support no um any support that I have or haven't had in that sort of journey is entirely my own fault because I'm very bad at talking to people when things are difficult or not necessarily when things are difficult, but um, I just sort of end up sort of keeping stuff more inwardly. So I had spoken to a few friends and just been like, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to try or we're trying and that sort of thing. And one of my friends um, whose fertility, I think, is just it seems to be absolutely off the charts <laughs> gave me some amazing tips because I remember her saying and this is no shade by the way I genuinely think this is fascinating saying that um she had really wanted a boy for one of her pregnancies and so she was using ovulation sticks and everything and then managed to ascertain the exact right point at which um she would need to have sex in order to have and, and lo and behold I mean god bless her she got knocked up and she had that son <laughs> but I was there just going but I've been weeing on sticks and I mean, absolute crickets. I mean, if I'd known it was this difficult, I wouldn't have spent my 20s going, oh, Jesus Christ, and going off to, like, you know, morning-after pill clinics if I'd got, you know, marginally more wasted than I should have done and worried that my pill wouldn't have been effective or whatever contraception I was on at the time. Mm. Um, but now I did have some friends who'd had, not children early, early, whatever early, early means to anybody, but who um, who did have kids and... Uh, and lovely, lovely examples of the genre. Nothing remotely off-putting, <laughs> and um, and we were sort of we were excited about it, excited in the sort of way I don't know, 
but you're a bit about getting a new carpet and you're a bit, a bit like, oh, it'll be a lovely new carpet. And then you're a bit like, oh, God, I'm going to spill something on it and ruin it. And how long we're we going to have it nice and new for sort of thing. Um, and then it just it just didn't happen. And it kept not happening. And I remember this. This these couple of times, actually, and this might ring bells to anybody listening, because oh my God, it's that awful thing when you suddenly become so aware of your period and your menstrual cycle mm-hmm. and. And when you particularly start clock watching or using apps like Clue or something like that, and everything just involves dots, there's just dots everywhere across your calendar. And and then you realise that the days when you should be having sex, you can't have sex because, I don't know, you're staying in somebody's small spare room or something. And that's just neither polite nor practical, as my husband pointed out to me quite rightly whilst I was trying to jump in <laughs> next to somebody's crib or something like that. Baby was not in it at the time, that would be a step too far. Um, but also once sitting outside Clapham Common Tube Station, there was this big sort of um, tree trunk that was just lying on its side. I think we were trying to fill in some time before going to see my husband's brother and his family. And I snapped at him and I then immediately burst into tears because I was like, oh, I snapped at you because that's PMT. And that means that I'm not pregnant again. God damn it. And and then just more and more of that. And it sort of became like this Spider-Man montage. But instead of, you know, raindrops keep falling on my head, it was just like, why do I keep bleeding every month? Mm-hmm. And and just sort of becoming so aware of it and just life becoming so claustrophobic. And we haven't even... Uh, poor husband, sorry. He is fine with me talking about this. But, oh, God, just trying to conceive sex is just... Oh, my God. Awful. Yeah, it is awful because yeah. you, it loses like any sense of of joy because you, you know, the reason you have sex is to have a nice time. Yeah, most, most you know, mostly. So when that is taken away, and the reason you're having sex is because it's when you're supposed to have sex, and as you say, when you're someone that's neither polite nor practical, <laughs> and I too have found myself in that situation. Um, once when I was glamping actually with another family, and that was awkward because we were like really need to do it and you know we're in this like shared safari tent I don't know it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't right um but yeah one of the other things that you said there that I really want to pick up on was that sense of claustrophobia when you're trying to conceive and the fact that it feels like there's no way out tell me about that experience for you well, it's a it's a feeling that I'm very used to in different ways because I've had what I later found out was depression and anxiety since I was about 12. Um, and I didn't find out that I sort of had them until I was about 18. So for six years at school, I just thought I was a horrible, defective person. And that was why I had so many endless thoughts running around my head. And that is a claustrophobic feeling, being stuck in your own head with nowhere to escape. Particularly because, like, in the in the 90s, there was nowhere to escape. And I was growing up in the countryside at the moment. So even more literally, there was no community or nowhere for me to sort of go to. There was just sort of, oh, well, I'll go to school and hopefully it'll be a bit less shit than yesterday and all that sort of stuff. And maybe every now and then there'd be a good day and that'd be quite nice. But the same thing with with trying to combine trying to conceive with 
having a mental health problem, which to be honest, I think everybody has once they've been trying to conceive for any amount of time, mm-hmm. because it's all a bit like, what am I doing wrong? What's happening? Why isn't it happening? Is this thing on? Am I taking enough supplements? And then it's very easy to just inadvertently find ways of convincing yourself that something is your fault. But I suppose a little bit in that way, because by convincing something is your fault, you can take control of it and go, well, if it's my fault, I can fix it. Whereas if it's, whereas if it's nobody's fault, then you can't fix it. And so that's when all the supplements come in, all the sort of, you know, doing more, doing more of yoga or mindfulness or something, because obviously the reason you can't get pregnant is because you're super calm, which actually is because you're not super calm, which actually um, a specialist at a hospital um, told me once, she was just like, just be, you know, just keep calm because otherwise your womb will get stressed and all that sort of stuff. Which the more that I think about it, the more outrageous I think that is, because it's like women and men, of course, but women have become they've become pregnant through rape, through rape in war zones, through power struggles, through anything for millennia. And to say that, you know, if you're stressed, you won't get pregnant is such an inadvertent insult to all of the people to whom that happens. So that always sort of gave me some comfort because it was just like, well, you know, she's being an idiot. And so every now and then it just meant that I could have some distance from some of the more stupid things that people say, which obviously you do brilliantly in your wonderful twants series. I always just <laughs> think of it as twants and think of them as twants for the people who say it. Um, but yeah, it's when you're trying to do all the TTC stuff and have a job and try and have a life and try not to get too caught up in what other people are doing or, you know, society at large or just just anything. It's very difficult, isn't it? And particularly if you're, you know, going through internet articles about how to remain calm whilst trying to conceive and stuff. And it's sort of like, you know, have a lovely bath, but not too much of a lovely bath because of Y. And, you know, do this, but not too much of that because of X. And, you know, do some yoga. And it's like, not everything can be answered by bloody yoga. <laughs> um, so I'm just, I'm amazed that, I'm amazed we do it, to be honest. And as much as the word warrior is a hideously overused and probably under under required term, there are elements to that in which I look at, I don't know, the introduction to a film like Wonder Woman or whatever with all the Amazons and I'm like, yes, every single one of you represents mm. another woman going through this absolute crapness, mm. whether it is, you know, primary infertility, secondary infertility, any kind of it. It's a horrible, shitty, crappy thing. I am so glad you said that because it is. It's horrible and shitty and crappy and I think the reason that I wanted to create those women's circles where we first met was because we just need space and time to be able to say to people, this is really shitty and horrible and crap and I feel horrendous. And for it not to be bulldozed over with, oh, but you just need to X, Y and Z. Because that's what we get so much from our friends and family, which is where the Twins series came from. <laughs> And if you're if you have only just found me, um, that's my think what not to say series, which is just to try and raise awareness, to try and yeah, just to just to shine a light on all of that stuff, and to you know even yesterday I did a post on Instagram to just say you know so often when we show we're about to start treatment, for example, with a friend or a family member, they might say oh that's so exciting, 
And for some people it might feel exciting, but it also might feel really scary or really um, nerve-wracking or, you know, and they're like scared about finances or, you know, there's like so many other feelings. And I had such a huge response because actually if if you're sort of diving straight in with that that's so exciting you're making this massive assumption that that person's excited about it they might be but like let's just listen and give them the space and time to think about how they feel and if they want to share how they feel then to do mm. so and and rather than you know go bulldozing in with that toxic positivity which can just shut down that communication like the, you know it's the fastest way to kind of shut down a, a relationship because it's not it's not you're not listening it's not a two-way you know conversation then it's just someone imposing their view of what you're about to do onto you so yeah that the Mm. fact that we just need to say it's shitty and horrible and crap like it is yeah and I was incredibly lucky actually because every single one of my friends acknowledged that brilliantly Mm. there was no sort of I don't know sickly hallmark card scenario whatever it was more just sort of like like they were cheering for me when I got my first IVF date and that mm. sort of thing. My book club sent me the most amazing, like um, they sent me like 200 quids worth of treat well vouchers Aww. so that I could just go and, you know, lie down and have a massage or something. They were all absolutely spectacular. The only people who weren't that spectacular were some of my immediate family for, for different reasons. Um, but actually one thing that I do feel... I think the most ashamed about is because I spend quite a lot of time or I have spent quite a lot of time in the past trying to control my reactions to things because they never necessarily felt like other people's and I will come to why in a a bit but this is not for I'm a special snowflake in my own sitcom sort of thing (laughs) it's and so when eventually you know things didn't go according well not according to plan but I mean when things didn't work I was completely taken aback and I think probably for the next year, year and a half, two years, I was very difficult to be friends with because I was completely unpredictable. And I was mortified by that because if I'm going to be unpredictable, I like to be unpredictable in the calm of my own house and then go out and be entirely predictable or, you know, lovely charming cat or something. Instead of which it would just be like my mood or my response to things would just sort of turn on a sixpence and that was fairly horrifying to me because I mean again that feeling was not something that was unfamiliar to me from my sort of years of you know basically just not being very mentally well but also not realizing I wasn't mentally well and so therefore just thinking I was defective and crap Mm -hmm. but it it was just so so hard almost more hard than sort of coming to terms with the fact that we weren't going to have kids and those sort of imaginary ghost children that I'd had in my head and in my heart and you know not quite holograms in the kitchen sort of thing but to an extent it was pushing everyone away in a really violent fashion and keeping people at such a distance and not knowing when I could be more predictable about this sort of stuff Um, and I think that's partly because um, just because of unfortunately the way my brain works but also just oh god it's like being like drunk almost just the sheer 
fear and sadness and violence of your feelings in the same way that you're sort of like drink 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 oh god suddenly we're in blackout stage the point of absolutely no return and you're like but when was that was it a glass and it's sort of it, it just complete unpredictability so yeah my friends were absolutely pitch perfect in every way whatever group they were in whether they were like acquaintances of the kind that you see at a party three times a year who are you know still cherished in a very specific way or closer friends or people that I spoke to every day but something that I did find really useful was actually using Instagram more Instagram stories particularly I mean yeah I set up like a sort of you know TTC account but I just didn't I didn't get on with that so well but just in my own stories um, which was something that I'd used when I was going through inpatient treatment uh, outpatient treatment sorry for binge eating disorder a few years ago I was just like well you know the only people who look at my stories are actually people that want to see my stories so that's fine and talking about brain stuff or you know horse riding or anything else I mean, earlier when you were introducing me, you said that my feed is very varied. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who is a professional social media editor, that is a nightmare. <laughs> and it's a very bad strategy if you were a brand, for example. But I'm not a brand. I'm a human being and I like these random things. And all of these things are part of me. So, yeah, that sort of just keep all the random stuff going in the stories. But that did help quite a lot. And I do have some good relationships with some followers which that makes me sound like fucking jesus but with some people on instagram and also some some other instagram accounts and some other things that aren't instagram like specific podcasts specific podcast episodes just listening to people talking about their story and if you're listening to that whilst i don't know doing something else like driving the car or doing chores or something then you've got that sort of physical outlet for the stress that you're feeling as you're listening to that story but also you've got the gratitude for going, oh, it's my story in somebody else's words. And that is wonderful. And that's, again, why what you do is so amazing. Mm, thank you. And I think, yeah, God, again, like I just really want to dive into so many of the things that you brought up then. But um, I wonder if we can go back a bit, because I feel like if people are listening, they're going to be like, what what happened? Like, what happened mm. with, with, with your story? And um so we'll come to that in a sec. But just what you were saying there about, you know, I'm not a brand. I'm a human. I'm a human being. And actually, I think that's really relatable to when we're going through fertility. We lose sight of the fact that we are human beings in a way. Like we become so consumed by what we're trying to achieve, which is this baby. We actually lose all those little parts of ourselves. And that's that is literally what people say. I've lost myself. And, and it's because we've we've forgotten like all the horse riding stuff that we love or like, you know, the self-care or making sure you're getting your um, your support for an eating disorder or whatever it is. So it's calling all those parts of yourself back again and, and mm. kind of breathing life into them to me is like the, one of the most important parts of actually functioning and reclaiming your life as you're going through it. So let's just wind back a little bit. You and your lovely husband have been trying, you've gone through some treatment. How long has this been going on for at this point when you have come into... Is it? Did you, did you go straight into IVF? So uh, we got married in July 2015 and I came off the pill in October of that year. And then sort of 
a few years later, sort of maybe 2018 or something, um, we were seeing various doctors at hospitals and that sort of thing. And I remember particularly one woman who looked exactly like Margaret Atwood sitting there and going, oh, you know, sweetie, we're worried if you were like 45, but you're 35, this will be fine. Because I'm obviously there hearing like elderly prima gravida going through my head and other super helpful terms like that. And I'm just like, I'm just becoming a Daily Mail headline, even though I've been trying to do everything right. Because um, that's the thing, isn't it? It's always about doing everything right. Well, f- for me anyway, it's just that horribly ingrained stuff. Um, but eventually we we were sort of referred for IVF and we went to go to this this hospital and sort of had all these dates and everything. And then they sort of, they were just like, okay, well, we'll let you know when we can have you along. And so after I got made redundant, after my wedding I used some of the money from that to take up horse riding again which was a childhood hobby that I was obsessed with but obviously hadn't done for years because you know university not really possible and then incredibly impoverished journalist you know <laughs> spent basically prioritizing getting wasted for free over you know anything else but so I, I used some money um uh, my grandma had died and I used some money to go and do like a cross-country training holiday in Ireland which I'd always promised myself that I would do one day and one day finally came and I went off and sort of bounced my way around Ireland on various horses with various degrees of complete ineffectitude and stress and then got a call whilst I was there to go oh come in next week we can start you and I, I to be honest I had a lovely time throughout the whole IVF process like the doctors and the nurses were incredible like so so amazing. I'd have a lovely conversation about my socks. Um, like my my brother's wife gave me some lovely pineapple socks, which was so sweet, and um, which I used to wear along with other ones to my checkups and that sort of thing. And I was lucky in that my work was the work the job that I was at at the time was, um, you know, relatively cool with me just randomly disappearing off for you know this that and the other. Um, and then. We, I had all my all the tests done, like my AMH levels were all great. Um, my husband, everything tickety-boo there. Like everything was just sort of, you couldn't have wished like a better set of results, except, you know, unless I was like 22, which obviously would have helped very much. But we went to go and have our first cycle. And I, I think they got, they only got nine eggs and none of them were mature. And I remember getting that call because me and a friend who lived down the road were in this lovely coffee shop um, making posters for the anti-Brexit march. And I just, I just, it was like that shot in Jaws where Chief Brodie's sitting on the beach and he sees the Kintner boy, I think, who's just been attacked and killed by the shark. And it's just like everything collapses in on his face. It's one of those incredible shots. And I just felt like that, except I was just like, why does the world look normal? It all still looks normal. And so I sort of just went and staggered into this lovely big disabled loo. Thank God for disabled loos. And and uh, couldn't do anything. I didn't cry. I didn't. I was just in absolute shock. And my amazing friend was just like, shall we go home? And I was like, no, no, of course, I'll still come to the march and everything. So we went and marched. And then afterwards, we went to the pub. And my friend was there with her son, who must have, I don't know, how old was he at the time? That sort of, I don't know, that sort of random stretch of maybe seven to ten when you're like, I've no idea how old you are. You could be three (laughs) or 15. And 
that he and one of his friends were standing on the wall, basically just yelling, like, bollocks to Brexit, and swearing at the top of their voice in a really delighted way. And when we were standing at the pub, I just ran out of energy, and I was just looking at him going, oh, shit, and then went home and and just basically sobbed on my husband. But we were like, never mind, you know, we get up and dust yourself off again. When can we book in again? So we booked in to go the next month and we were like, this will be fine. And I was like, right, this time I'm really going to do everything that I possibly can. Because, I mean, I had already been doing everything I possibly could, but I was just like, this time I'm going to be in a montage. I will have even more acupuncture. I will take all of the supplements as opposed to just mostly all of the supplements. I mean, I was just like, I was rattling like a skeleton. And just, I will spend more money on things that some internet articles have told me might be useful. And um, the day before I was going to go and have my egg collection, um, we went to the, the amazing slide at the Olympic Park with some friends. And so, to be honest, my, my biggest memory of that is of, like, screaming my head off going down that insanely fast slide and being with Will and... I think Johnny and Matt and some other and just people that I loved and then we went in to have the egg collection the next day and this time they got 22 eggs and again none of them were mature mm. and I just knew at that point oh god this just isn't going to happen for me is it because oh, my key my key thought for that was a the feeling in my gut that that was just it but also this is so ridiculous that there were only 22 tagged photos for immature eggs on Instagram and most of them were about cooking (laughs) I was just like well it's you know if there's this little information on Instagram which is sort of rapidly you know catching up to be Google then you know fuck basically and when when I had that realization I it was again like that Chief Brody moment, except this time it was just like I don't know something in a Marvel movie or something when, you know, the the universe collapses into a black hole. I just I lost all ability to think, to be, to do anything. All of my feelings were just concentrated to this insane, laser focused, diamond sharp devastation, and. And again, like when I was saying earlier about not being able to sort of know how to speak to my friends brilliantly about it, I needed to outsource this immediately. It was too big a pain to be able to just give to my, you know, closest IRL people, if you like. Mm. So I left all of my WhatsApp groups and I just put out a tweet just, you know, basically going, just, you know, we just found out our second round of IVF has failed and probably never going to have children so if you've got something kind to say, I'd really like to hear it. And then I just put my phone down and and actually a friend came over in the evening and we had a lovely time. Just my husband who'd come home from work early and the cat and her and just going, everything is lovely. How can everything be so broken and awful? when the world is so sunny and beautiful and lovely because it was May 2019 and it was just the loveliest day and our world was falling apart and it just continued and 
again, I just didn't know what to do. So the next day I went and um, got my nails done and got a blow dry and went shopping down the road to get some nice sort of stretchy trousers because obviously, you know, egg collection bloat and that sort of thing. And just basically kept going and having makeovers. Like I got my eyebrows done. It was just like something out of Miss Congeniality. <laughs> and I got a fake tan, Lovely. literally just everything. And, and eventually there was just literally no more of me that I could have beautified. It was just like I was as tamed and as polished as I could possibly get. And so the egg collection had been on uh, Monday or the Tuesday and on Friday we were going to see the consultant and and by that point I'd really you know reconciled myself in theory to the fact that it just what we were to what he was going to tell us and so I was like well I'm very glad that I've got all my feelings about this just wrapped up over this four-day period this is very efficient and then real life can carry on and and so we went to go and see the consultant we took like thank you cards and chocks for the staff and everything I don't know what it is about consultants they don't know you from Adam they all look horrible they've got horrible glasses and suits and they just look at you with such disdain even if they don't mean to they're just sort of it's like the the model skeleton in an anatomy class has been made sentient and that is the person who has to talk to you as opposed to the actual people doing the treatment. Mm. Anyway, so he did not get chocolates, <laughs> and he was the one who was just like, oh, we don't know why it hasn't worked. And it was like, well, bully for you, moron. <laughs> uh, but we did come out of there, because this had been the news that we were expecting, and when we were talking through it, there was something... We managed to claw back some comfort in thinking because I'm very creative and my husband is very logical. We sort of absolutely pair up in that sense. And he loves science and maths and all of that sort of stuff. We both love the internet and Terry Pratchett and those sort of things are our sort of way in. And we were so comforted by the thought that going, well, okay, so this is unexplained infertility and this immature egg larky and, and who knows, but just think in 50 years or so, this might not be a problem for people in our situation. And we will have helped with that to some degree just by having had this experience and by doctors go, well, this is very weird. Wonder why this happened. And we will just be added to the number of cases, you know, who go through something like this and, and don't get, you know, I mean, obviously so much of IVF is, you know, the outcomes aren't great. It's just, I think we hear quite a lot about the positive outcomes where, you know, oh, there was a wobble, but then we had one cycle of IVF and baby dust bloomed. <laughs> and other awful <laughs> mum's net terms and that sort of thing. It's just, you know, that that didn't happen for us. And so I think the exhilaration of having gone, oh, well, this is fine, meant that I was sort of like, okay, fine, well, let's just wrap this up now and we don't ever need to think about it again. But that is not how sadness and pain works. And in fact, I spent much of the, in fact, I have spent much of the two years since feeling very bored by the fact that it's like, oh God, I'm sad again. When is this going to end? When do I get to move on with my life? When do I get to enjoy something instead of just being like, oh, this is really sad? Because it is really sad. But feeling concentrated agony for long periods of time mm. is unacceptable mm. and certainly I tried everything realistically that I could to sort of try and help with this 
I had a lot of therapy. I had a really good therapist. I gave up drinking and started going to 12-step meetings, which really helped. Um, and then a few months after that, um, I realised that I had ADHD and that that was where all of my depression, anxiety, addiction, problems, insomnia, reason for not fitting in, feeling defective, feeling just awful all the time. That was where that came from. And then I got a diagnosis and months later started treatment. But the interesting thing is, is that I'm not sure that I would have given up drinking, ironically, if I'd got pregnant, because unless, you know, the kid was you know really pretty awful, I probably wouldn't necessarily have felt so exquisitely agonised that I just thought, you know what, it's probably a good idea just to stop drinking, because I wasn't necessarily drinking to drown my sorrows, it was more to make myself try and feel something else. And that had been something that I'd been doing through my 20s because it was all fairly normalised. But soon I just wasn't feeling necessarily any joy from it and I was just feeling more consequences. So I'm not obviously remotely grateful for, you know, infertility and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, life happens and something else happens after that. And eventually, when we're sort of like, I don't know, 95 years old, we might be able to sort of chart a course. And, and well, I suppose it's like when you write your CV and you're trying to, and then you're like, oh, yes, I can absolutely discern a path as opposed to just like random things happening <laughs> according to chaos and that sort of thing, which is obviously what all our lives are like. But certainly now being able to understand how my brain works and, and just sort of look at things with a bit more clarity that combined with having a bit more distance from the IVF is very helpful. Um, during, I mean, just as the pandemic was starting last year, we had thought that we'd have another go at IVF. And uh, we had a consultation at a hospital. I mean, it was, it was deeply hilarious because the doctor had broken her leg in a skiing accident, which just goes to show those private doctors, snazzy halls. <laughs> Um, and but, but we had to have the phone call, obviously, over the phone because of COVID and because we now appear to be living in War of the Worlds or something. And unfortunately, she told us that it just, you know, we could try a cycle, but it just wasn't going to work for us. And and that was another goodbye altogether, because unlike the first time I had I couldn't go and, you know, miss congeniality myself into oblivion because everywhere was closed. You know, friends couldn't come round. Um, and also, more to the point, I didn't feel like I was exploding this time. I just felt very sad and like I wanted to disappear. And I felt that quite a few times in my life, not necessarily actively wanting to kill myself, but just wishing that I could just neatly wrap myself up in a little bow so that nobody would have to find my body or anything like that and just poof, just mm. go. Mm. And, but that's also because I wasn't drinking. And so I couldn't just, you know, go, well, that's okay. We'll just have some Prosecco. We'll just have some, I don't know, a gin cocktail or something. Mm. We'll just have a lovely warming glass of red wine. You know, you're just there feeling bald with all of your feelings going, mm. fuck, mm. again, fuck and there's a pandemic god damn it and then you've got other friends who are going through crap things and it's just like 
crap upon crap upon crap, just like a crap sandwich. And I, and I just I just didn't know what to do at that point. And I don't have anything helpful or pithy to say because <laughs> it was just a question of feeling really continually crap. I think that that is helpful to say because I'll tell you I'll tell you for why. <laughs> <laughs> My inspiring line of posters starts here. <laughs> crap sandwich. <laughs> I'll tell you why, because everything that you've just said about the fact that when you had that consultation, <laughs> I'm just picturing the doctor with the um, the leg up and the, yeah. Anyway, but you had the consultation, you basically were told it's very unlikely that it's going to happen. Was and, and then was that kind of like the, was that the moment where you sort of decided that you were going to walk away from any other treatment? Yeah, I think I just knew... Was, sorry, was this after the second IVF or after the... After that consultation at the start of the pandemic. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, it's so odd, isn't it, how you have deeply held beliefs that you aren't even... or well, not beliefs, but just knowledge that you have absolutely no awareness of until it comes to the point. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I am extremely pro-choice, but inwardly I always knew that if I ever got pregnant, um, I just couldn't or wouldn't have an abortion um which meant that my thoughts about contraception were just incredibly hysterical all the way through my 20s and very nervous and I did have that belief that you know if if a boy sort of breathed at me I'd just get pregnant through my renowned female fertility and all that sort of stuff um oh sorry I've completely lost my train of thought uh that was the moment you decided you were going to go away that was the moment that was it um but similarly uh, I knew that donor eggs was not something certainly that I wanted to pursue, um, which at the same time gave me the sort of cheerful thought that that would save us a few grand. Um, and we did, uh, I did start going to like adoption open meet evenings and that sort of thing. And I'd already been listening to lots of amazing um, adoption podcasts. And I think my favourite is actually an LGBTQ plus one called Some Families which anybody, uh, whether you're thinking about adoption or anything else, should just listen to, because it's the most wonderful series about family and love, and just mm. it's just absolutely gorgeous, and I found that really inspiring. Um, but at the same time, this was before I had my ADHD diagnosis, and I was just like, I just know that I need to be in a much more stable and settled mental state before I go about raising a child who already comes with a lot of trauma and that is and that's not because I was just like oh but it's fine to have my kid and screw them up because you know we'll both have the same genetics sort of thing um it was just having realized particularly after giving up drinking and going god you've got you know all these brain things um it's just like why do you keep having all these different brain things when are you just going to be you know, normal or regular or stable. And I wanted to give any kid, however old they were, I don't think would have really minded, um, just the very, very best life, the best support, and to be the best parent that I could be. And I don't mean that in like a, I'm going to win sports day every year, because literally not going to happen. I have terrible hips. But But to be the most loving, the most supportive, and 
you basically just all of those episodes of Super Nanny that we grew up obsessively watching in our 20s for some reason. I want I wanted to be able to give stability and, and support and groundedness to our children. And I just didn't think that I could do that at that point. And that may be something that changes later on. But we both went to virtually on Zoom, these information evenings and that sort of thing. And everybody was so lovely and the stories were so all of the people that came along to talk about their experience of adoption were absolutely amazing but I was just like I just I need to figure out what's going on up here properly um and then and then sort of look again really uh so instead we adopted a dog mm, Sybil Sybil oh. the only name we could agree on <laughs> So you, I'm going to come back to why I said I thought it was actually really helpful what you were saying then about, you know, when you were sharing about what that was like to hear that, you know, when you had all those eggs collected in that second round and none of them were mature and, yeah, that the way you were describing that pain and how completely all-consuming that must have been. And I think that we as a society don't recognise that as grief, right? Like there's... I think there's someone there's a brilliant podcast um that talks about this quite a lot which is the yes you mentioned it actually underneath that post didn't you that disenfranchised disenfranchised grief, grief which is a concept it. I'd never heard about before and which I was so grateful for mm. um so uh, again sorry my memory is really bad and you were doing so well at keeping strands of this together whilst I tangent all over the place <laughs> but um I will dig out her Instagram handle it's, and maybe I, it can go in there but um yeah uh, Casey, something like it's chasing creation. Chasing creation. Thank yeah. you. Um, so, I even now, like two years on, I haven't really put my toes in the childless, childless, not by choice community, which is an amazing community of women who have gone through, you know, fertility treatment or tried to have babies and it just not worked. And it was, it's sort of kicked off by Jodie Day of Gateway mm. Women. And there is a wonderful podcast episode that I listened to just the other day um, of her with Anna Whitehouse, Mother Pucker, mm. um, on her Where's My Happy Ending podcast. And she was a story that I loved listening to because she was just like, I never, you know, I never thought that I'd become like some, you know, leader, leader of childless women sort of thing or that I would be childless or something like that. But, you know, life turns out weirdly and... She had, after she couldn't have children, um, I think she trained as a, a psychotherapist and has helped lots of other people mm. in that way. But yeah, just trying to, just hearing the words disenfranchised grief helped so much because I'd listened to podcasts with David Kessler, who's the organiser of grief.com. Um, and he's always been really brilliant on, on, on sort of randomness of grief, but like, I've never been pregnant in my life, which probably should have been a hint. It wasn't just my exceptional attitude to contraception. Um, but that also means that I've never had a miscarriage. I've never gone through the unimaginable, like, devastating feeling of having your child inside you and then it just drifting off, but not drifting off, having to say goodbye to it in such a violent still now very poorly provided for fashion 
and and so again when you can't have when you can't have babies or your or in my case all my eggs are immature or that sort of things so there's literally no sort of physical connection there you're just like oh but I feel really sad and I'm grieving for something so disenfranchised grief as I understand it is that thing about having grief that isn't necessarily socially provided for mm. and but I and I was just like but I do I've got these you know two random child figurines who are inexplicably dressed in long nightgowns <laughs> sort of a little bit like Prince George whenever they dress him up to look like a 1940s evacuee <laughs> and they're just sort of drifting around in my head just sort of being there but they are there and my therapist when I was still seeing her last year was just she got me to talk to them as if she were as if they were in the chair and what I would like to say to them and she also was just like well you know would you like to have a funeral for them and I was like oh, God, I can't have a funeral for people that don't exist realizing that that wasn't me talking that was you know my mum or like my family or not necessarily my family but a wider society and I I still haven't done that and I do really want to I'm just not ready to do that but what I did do in January was I wrote them a letter I wrote them seven pages of probably even more tangential than I've been speaking now drivel but I told them how much I loved them and how proud I was of them and how loved they were and and that I was so sorry I wasn't going to be able to meet them but that I held them in my heart so much and that just because I wasn't going to hold them in my arms or something it didn't mean that they weren't with me because they were so much um oh god they were gonna have such great names actually that's not true because when I say that my husband and I were arguing about dog names um the arguments that we had about children's names were so much worse um but that was a huge thing actually because it was acknowledging that my children were real mm. and you know I might not have given them a funeral yet and that's probably because I'm not quite ready to say goodbye to them um, and I'm still you know sorting my head out and all that sort of stuff but writing to them was really wonderful as well oh yeah that's really powerful because I think by doing that and by you even just talking about that go some way to explaining the depth of pain that you go through even though you know as you say you haven't been through a miscarriage you haven't experienced that and neither have I but we need to provide the support for that level of pain that people go through when there's no place to put it mm. and even when there is somewhere to put it you know British people aren't terribly good at grief really anyway are no, they no. so <laughs> even when there is actually a funeral it's very awkward and you know generally people are don't really not it's a conduit to sandwiches really isn't it yeah. <laughs> people don't really know what to do with themselves um so you know I oh, what an incredible therapist you had because yeah I can I can see how incredibly powerful that is for you to just have that time to experience what it it's like to have a dialogue with your children. What did that do for you, having that therapy and being able to put that down on paper? It made me realise, I think, how much work I had to do in other areas of my life. Um, 
and that annoyingly other things might have to happen or you know my brain might have to settle down or my feelings might have to calm down before I can start doing those things I know that sounds really like oh these things are really important but I mean it might have been something like I don't know think about working in a different way or um or just you know think about re-establishing the idea of what it means to be part of a family but I think it didn't sort of I think if this was a film I would write that letter and then I might go off into the sunset with a really thoughtful smile on my face and then the credits would roll and we'd be like oh well you know everything's fine and you know we've wrapped up her story nicely but that's not life is it there's never you know the credits never roll until you're literally dead and I'm not ready for that to happen yet <laughs> so instead you just have to you just have to keep buggering on really and that can be quite exhausting and quite annoying um, and it, literally exhausting in some cases because I've had like problems with fatigue for quite a, a long time, and and so for a lot of the time that I was that the infertility stuff was happening or the treatment, I was also just absolutely knackered, and I'd get home at work at, from work at like I don't know six thirty or something and just go straight to bed. Um, so my poor husband was basically going out with like an invalid for sort of like years, um, but. I suppose something that I do feel like really happy about is that I don't now feel like the infertility is my fault or that it's, you know, my fault for not being able to give my husband children. He instantly has been a complete and utter legend throughout the whole thing. And I have never felt even the slightest twinge that he would rather, for example, have a kid than have me, than have us. And he has always made it abundantly clear that us two, as a family, is all the family that he needs. Which is unfortunate, because we now have, like, two cats and a dog. <laughs> um, I want to meet him. I just, every time you talk about him, I'm like, I love the sound of this guy. Oh, he's, he's just, just really great. Like a real good egg. Yeah, complete, yeah. complete legend. Um... And, uh, and very good-humoured as much as it can be about my melodramatica tendencies. <laughs> so tell me, I know how much you love Sybil and your cats and everything. How important was it to you that those little creatures came into your life? <laughs> well, I got, my, I got a cat just before I turned 30. And again, thinking about the social implications of being a single, as I was then, a single woman with cats... I was just like, God, but I'm, I'm nearly 30. So I'm basically, you know, embracing spinsterhood or something and living with cats. And I think there is so much fairly unforgivable still coverage of women as pet owners. I remember one particularly vile piece in The Guardian from a couple of years ago in which this horrible writer had, for whatever reason, known only to herself, written this piece saying that millennials, because it's always millennials, and it's like, do you mean Gen Z? Do you mean the 20-somethings? Or do you mean the nearly 40-somethings? That millennials were choosing fur babies over actual babies. Mm. And it was just like, how dare you? How actually dare you? Mm. Because not everybody is choosing pets over having babies. Um, sometimes it's because pets are actually quite nice and they're quite companionable and they're less of a hassle than like having a human flatmate sometimes or it's because 
you know, one of the reasons that we got Sybil our dog was because I need the routine of something to get me out of the house because otherwise I get bizarrely agoraphobic and just sort of stare sadly out of the window going, I wish I was outside, but I can't open the door. Whereas obviously a dog is just like, well, I'm just going to, you know, crap everywhere and just look at you very sadly unless you take me for a lovely walk. So that was that was part of it. But also this idea that there is an either or, because it's not that simple. And there are so many societal issues, not least in, you know, the, uh, frankly, appalling cost of childcare in Britain and you know salaries simply not having risen you know huge problems with housing and also you know sometimes you just don't find the person that you would want to have children with I mean god I look back at some of my past boyfriends and go well that was a choice um I hope they're all very happy now etc but oh god um and that yeah that's really difficult so mm. There is a part of me sort of, you know, warding extremely bad will onto people that write p posts like that. But, you know, having a really characterful cat is a lovely thing. Like, my elder cat is a complete asshole, but she's mine. Mm. And when I was having my injections, because the first cycle, I really couldn't focus on the injections at all. And I would basically just look away and my husband would very kindly do them. She always came and sat with me whilst they were happening. And every time that I got home from work and was really tired, she'd come and sit with me then as well. I mean, if I touched her too much, she'd obviously attack me. And my, <laughs> my arms are always just like, you know, covered in the terrible scratches of having an awful cat. But the companionship there was incredible. And similarly now with our dog, it's just, it's partly because I knew that I didn't want to go back into an office-based environment because I was clinging on to that for, you know, maternity leave down the line. And, you know, if I don't need that, what does that mean for my profession? What does that mean for how I operate in the world? Do I have to still sort of go into an office five days a week? I mean, answers to which, you know, no, hopefully now post pandemic, but, yeah, these are all just sort of interesting things that have sort of been thrown up over the course of the last few years. Mm. Um, I'm really aware that I've like I could literally sit and listen to you talk all day. So I'm but I'm very aware that I'm sure we're both like desperate for some fresh air at some point. So I'm gonna I'm not gonna keep you too much longer, but I do want to come and just dive into a bit more on how you reached this moment now, where I know that you know there's you say you still want to make sure your kind of mental state is more stable is that fair to say even if you were to consider you know other options routes to parenthood or whatever it is it's just not really on the agenda at the moment oh yeah i think so but you're very much kind of living your life in a really full and rich way and like quite a few of the things that you've mentioned there that came up the fact that you've given up alcohol that you know you've got your adhd um I said that right, ADHD. Yeah, that's right, isn't perfect. it? Yeah. <laughs> ADHD diagnosis, and you've got a Sybil, and I don't know, as you said, like you just keep buggering on. Like, how do you feel about the next kind of chapter? How are you feeling mm. now about having gone through such stark pain and grief? Where do you see the next, yeah, the next chapter? I think that's one of the really difficult things because I have no idea. I have no idea. That was also why I left 
my office job at the time because I was like, well, I don't think I want to be doing that for the rest of my life at all. Um, but I think the only reason that I'm in any kind of all right state of things at the moment is because of the passing of time. And I think, like when I was talking about after the second round of IVF failed and throwing myself into that makeover montage, unfortunately, when something really aggressively, violently bad to you happens, the only thing that is going to fix that, well, it's not even a fix, I keep saying fix, is time. But I think also, one, all of the things in my life that have sort of really affected me to this degree, whether it is discovering that I have ADHD or giving up drinking or my mental health history or this infertility, they actually all relate to the fact that not a very long time ago at all, women were still intensely subjugated. So when I was at my thrusting girls school, when I was sort of like seven or eight, um, that was barely 20, 25 years from when women still had to have a man's signature on her mortgage and not being able to have credit, not being able to have independence. I mean, even even when I started career, my career like 15 years ago, women were treated fairly awfully and it was just a thing. It was just, oh, well, this just happens because, I mean, that's your fault for sort of coming into a blokey atmosphere. This blokey atmosphere being like film and TV journalism, for goodness sake, and music journalism. There was just no sort of space for women. And yet because ladette culture had happened mm -hmm. and because women were getting their norks out on FHM and that sort of thing. Hey, yay, yay, everybody's fine. Everybody's fun. It was just like, simmer down. You know, girls are drinking lager top now. You know, everything's equal, which is just not the case. And I think I'd spent quite a lot of time going, but oh, but you know, women are equal now, whilst in my heart I knew that that wasn't the case. And so when you're trying to tell yourself one thing, but inside you feel another, yes. that's when everything is that. So whilst I'm sort of going, everything's fine, everything's fine, you can't have kids, everything's fine. Inside it's going, hold on there, love. This is going to take longer to go through. Yeah. Yeah, I really want to just, just bring that up, actually, because I feel like that is exactly what the crux of it is. Because when those two things are actually in alignment, like mm. when, when, because that's that's what causes so much confusion, right? When we're, <laughs> but wait a minute, that this like the messaging and also what I'm sending to myself is one thing, and then how I feel is just completely different. Mm. That's what that that's what keeps people feeling trapped, and keeps people feeling very confused and very unable to kind of make any movement forward even if other you know external circumstances aren't going to how you plan if that's also happening at the same time it's it's you know almost impossible to kind of make any decisions about where you want your life to go or how you want how just how you want to feel on a daily basis because you're you're just in such um there's such tension between you know external and internal feelings yeah. so that kind of alignment of like truth essentially like when we're just in our kind of truth of like this is actually how I feel mm. and this is what's going on like that's when I feel like the freedom comes like even if it's shit yes hugely but also if if this voice up here if you like which is the external voice 
if that's society going, oh, but you should be feeling this way, or the only reasons for being infertile are X, Y, or Z, so are you doing this, mm -hmm. are you doing that? The only reason that I was diagnosed with ADHD at all is because the diagnostic criteria for women changed in 2013, mm. which is insane. But it's, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's not insane because so much is male-centric. But, you know, the Bart Simpson stereotype of the, you know, little white boy climbing the walls. I mean, anybody watching this video is going to see that I'm, you know, fidgety in my seat and I'm shaking my hands all the time. But hyperactivity in women can also be those racing thoughts. It can all also be that sort Wait. of feeling of your, you know, brain sort of breaking out of your skull all the time. But, and similarly, well, in a very loose sort of parallel, but in terms of the investment in, in pregnancy and gynaecology and how women's systems work, which is still, you know, fairly woeful. Mm. And so I guess that's why me and my husband were sort of like, well, let's hope that in 50 years there'll be a reason as to why immature eggs is even a thing at all, even with tweak protocols and all that sort of thing. Um, not to say that, you know, it's our right to have a baby, but it's more just because, you know, I was raised and the message that I took in from society is go off and have a little job for a bit. You've got to become a mum. Mm. Oh my God, so much so. And I think that is what I want to see changed for the next generation is the freedom to just see what happens. And the fact that when I said to you, what does the next chapter hold to you? And you were like, I don't know. Exactly, like no, no one knows. Like, yeah. of course we don't. I don't know. Like, I have things and thoughts that might I might want to do or might happen or whatever. But I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. And it's actually that is a piece of it as well, isn't it? That kind of like, do you know what? I don't have the control. Like, as much as you're all telling me, did you do this right and did you do that right? I don't have the control over whether that happens no. or not. But I think the one thing that has sort of really changed for me over the last few years as opposed to going that I do I do slash don't want to have a family for all the reasons that previously expressed but also but if I do have a family then I mean that's basically 20 years of my life at least sort of booked up with something to do a little bit like the pressure of an empty diary and going oh god yeah I'll go and see this that and the other so I think now, rather than instead of thinking the practical things I want to do, it's more about what I want to be. Mm. I want to, uh, partly I want to just understand my brain and how that works, just so that I can sort of make the most of it. But also I want to make sure that I'm not carrying on unhelpful attitudes from like previous generations of my family and previous generations of society. So... For example, I mean, the completely noxious attitudes towards trans women, particularly mm. in the press. Um, trans men never really mentioned, oddly enough. Mm, mm. Um, so that, again, that's that's something that is like pretty important to me. But also just, you know, I just want to be a decent person, hopefully, um, because, you know, a lot of people have had to deal with unmedicated, undiagnosed cat over the years. Um, drunk cat and all that sort of stuff as well and yeah it would just be nice if I can have a good life and enjoy it and not overthink the person that I am presenting to other people because so much of my life this far has been about hiding the person that I truly am because I think that person is defective and broken and shit 
um, and just to sort of go that this is okay I'm happy with who I am and I've got nothing to hide and again part of that is because I know that no members of my family would dream about talking about what's going on in their brain or anything like that partly because that's just not their thing and that's absolutely fine partly because you know they might not need to but it helps me it helps sort of break a stigma and also it just sort of means that I end up finding my people mm -hmm. which is just wonderful you're speaking your truth you know and, and being able to say exactly what's going on with you and what has been going on with you and like all of this stuff that's coming out like we've tried to record this podcast about three times <laughs> I think I initially approached you like two years ago when I was doing that second series yeah. or something and like you know that didn't happen and then this didn't happen and now I feel like this was you know this was a, a brilliant time to talk to you because everything that you've been through and everything that's coming up now you know you've been on such a massive journey for want of a better mm. word but such a huge journey the candle behind me is making alarming noises which is frightening the best kind of candles <laughs> it sounds like something's about to yeah burn quite alarmingly um but yeah the fact that we are talking now in this moment and like everything that's come up for you and that everything that's going to you know happen and i love that you were saying that you just want to be rather than thinking about what might happen it's just about being and like who you are is absolutely okay and like like healing all of those thoughts over like many many years that something's defective or broken and just going actually it's it's just who I am and that's okay mm. thank you so much Kat thank you so much Alice oh <laughs> That was really so amazing to chat to you. So thank you for coming to my little makeshift garden studio. Thank you for setting candles on fire for me. <laughs> it's really quite scary. I'm going to blow it out now. Cat Brown, ladies and gentlemen, isn't she totally marvellous? I could have spoken to her all day. She is wonderful. And she did also bring me a very nice, lovely um, bar of soap, which smells delightful. Um, and so thank you very much, Kat, for coming to my little garden studio and talking to me and being so generous with your honesty and for all of your work. I really, really love it. Um, do go and follow Kat, Kat Brown Writes on Twitter and Instagram and catbrownwrites.com. And if you have enjoyed the podcast, if you have been listening to my episodes, please do go and rate and review. It would mean the absolute world to me. You can just do that through Apple and um, scroll down and yeah, pop your five stars in. <laughs> Leave me a glowing review or just send me an email and let me know as well. Um, any uh, anything that you want to share with me or any insights or anything that you want to hear on this show and I'd love to hear from you and, and thank you as well to everyone who does share it with me and does share it as well yes take screenshots while you're listening share it on your Instagram um, let's get these stories heard let's get this community together and I will be back with you very soon and until then do take care <laughs>